Welcome back to the mystery of the missing attention span. Let's dive in. We wanted to start this conversation about ADHD with a quick overview of the criterion we're going to talk about. The recording that follows from here is our discussion of what each of these looks like in application, but we want a little bit of structure to help start off. There are a number of criterion that are needed for consideration of ADHD. Not all children will have all of these, but these are the things that we're looking for when we consider ADHD as a possible diagnosis, specifically in the inattention portions of the ADHD criterion. We'll talk more about that later. But the criterion are as follows. One, often fails to give close attention to details or makes careless mistakes in daily activities at home and school. Two, often has difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or play activities. Three, often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly. Four, often does not follow through on instructions and fails to finish schoolwork, chores, or other duties in their lives. Five, often has difficulty organizing tasks and activities. Six, often avoids dislikes or is reluctant to engage in tasks that require sustained mental effort. Seven, often loses things necessary for tasks or activities. Eight, is often easily distracted by extraneous stimuli. Nine, is often forgetful in daily activities. That's a mouthful, and that's the psychologist's version of the criterion. The rest of this episode is going to help you figure out what that means in the real world. Welcome back to the Kids Brain Detective podcast. Today, it is a couple of really wonderful assessment specialists here with my Kids Brain team, and I'm so happy to have each of you. So I want to do some quick introductions first. I'm Dr. Jennifer Morrison, and I'm here with Katherine Harris. Hi, Dr. Morrison. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for coming. And Dr. Mari Rodriguez-Rivera. Hello there. Ready to dive into the mystery of ADHD. And Dr. Katie Caldwell. Thank you all for joining us today. It'll be a good conversation. So to save the mouthful with all of the titles, we're just going to go by first names today. Um, our overall topic for today is ADHD. We spend a lot of time working with families to either figure out if ADHD is applicable for their child or to help kids that have suspected issues. So we want to talk about that. Um, Katie, let's start maybe with like the psychologist version of ADHD, what are those diagnostic pieces that we are supposed to be looking for when we are making a formal clinical diagnosis of ADHD kind of look like? Sure. So to back up even a step before that, there's this big book called the DSM that we use when making a diagnosis of anything. And in this book um, are different symptom criteria that a individual has to meet in order to meet criteria for that specific diagnosis. And so with ADHD, just like anything else, there's certain symptom criteria that has to be met. And then you also have to be able to show that there is, that it affects them across settings, I guess is the best way to put it. So what you're saying is for ADHD to be actually diagnosed, you have to both have a certain number of symptoms and it has to be something that makes life harder for you in the things that you're required to do. Exactly. So home, school, community. So like community with kids, that might be soccer. It might be gymnastics. It might be birthday parties. 
that sort of thing. So, Maria, if we're thinking about ADHD and whether we are or are not going to make a diagnosis with this in mind, is it possible to have attention problems or to be hyperactive or impulsive and not meet criteria for ADHD? Absolutely. And I think that's why the assessment is very helpful. So if you think about a family gathering or you know, a meeting with friends or at the park, you're going to see that there's a range of different behaviors and characteristics that we all have as humans, right? We're not all the same. Now, there's a point when there's some behaviors that actually make it harder for kids at that point to um, interact with other kids or um, being able to follow through with what your parents are saying. And so that's, there's that point where they can maybe distractible, but they can be rejected and they're fine versus you know, it's a lot of effort and it's affecting their friendships. So, sure. So, Catherine, can you just be ADHD at home? No, no. You have to have impairment across more than one setting. Um, otherwise, it's probably something about that specific environment causing you to work that way. Okay. So, if we're thinking about this in broad strokes, the first place I kind of want to start is as um, assessment professionals that are reliant on a set of criterion, I think maybe the most important place to start is with the actual name of the diagnosis itself. Because a lot of times we'll have families come in and they'll use different ways of describing ADHD. So like, Katie, have you ever had a family come in and say, I'm worried that my child might have ADD? Absolutely. That happens all of the time. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because ADHD is now considered an, um, an umbrella term. And so 15 years ago-ish. I'm not exactly sure when it changed, but I think sometime in the 90s. In the 90s, yeah. So ADD used to be separate from ADHD. Now it's, it's an umbrella term. And so there's different subtypes of ADHD. There is the predominantly inattentive type, which if you just think about it, that's what ADD used to be. And we'll talk about what the symptoms of that type are. There's also a hyperactive impulsive type. And then finally, there's a combined type, which is just the inattentive type and the hyperactive impulsive type combined. I feel like it's I think originally the expectation was that these could be separate entities. Like you could have a child who just struggles with attention, which is certainly possible. And you can have a child who just struggles with hyperactive and impulsive behaviors, which is also possible. But the prevalence rate suggests that the overlap between the attention struggles and the behavioral control difficulties are much more likely to happen. And that a larger portion of the population of kids and teens and then even adults that meet criterion for ADHD struggle with both. So in lieu of having these two separate floating diagnoses, they've said, hey, it's really common to have both factors come into play. Let's make this one big concept with different ways that this can present. So I want to dive into what's probably really boring criterion and think about what that might actually look like. So when parents come to us as a team at Kids Brain and say, I'm really worried about my child potentially having ADHD, our job is to dig down and figure out what that looks like in application. So Catherine, if that first diagnostic piece is something real dry, like often fails to give attention to details or makes careless mistakes. Mm-hmm. What would that look like in application? Like if a parent was wanting to be able to check the box, say, okay, I see this at home, or the teacher's reporting this at school, what would that look like in application? A lot of times that's difficulty following instructions. So at school, at home, maybe um, they can get one step, but cannot do anything multi-step. 
um, or making careless errors in their work, not going back to check their work for mistakes, rushing through work, um, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I also think it's you can see um, the frustration sometimes for me too as a parent of a child with ADHD is those times when you see them, like you know they can do that, you know, and then they're like making this mistake that to you it may seem like they're not putting enough effort, you know, but it's kind of like the attention piece. But you're like, why, why did you do that? You know? So maybe it feels like an inconsistency problem. Like this is a child who's functionally capable of paying careful attention to be able to um, spell this in the right sequence or to do this math procedure or to finish homework, but that it hit or miss. Some days they're on and they can do this for short periods of time and do a great job, but other days they're having a hard time and missing things that they normally would not be doing. So that you see this on again, off again profile, I think comes into play when we're looking at the behavioral piece. I also honestly think it's task specific. So I'll give you an example. So if I'm working with a kid who is really, really strong in math, but I give them a bunch of simple math problems and maybe also simple math problems that are different kinds of computations. So maybe there's some addition in there and then some subtraction. A kid who can do complex algebra might really struggle with some of those simple tasks because their brain hasn't experience that challenge that makes them be able to rise to the occasion and focus better. And so instead, they're quickly rushing through something simple. uh, And that's when we see the careless mistakes come in. Sure. And interestingly, that's both attention and behavioral control at the same time, right? So this is where we see some of that overlap in behaviors. Um, Monty, talk to me about, so it says, often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly. Like, yeah. What does that look like? Because that's a weird one. Yeah, well, I think it, it looks different at different ages, right? So um, I think in the younger kids, you know, you are asked, you know, calling their names a lot, you know? So you're like, Jennifer, 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 you know, constantly talking to them, you know? With, um, with teens, it happens that, you know, it happens as well. But it's your example of like, hey, can you go take out the trash, you know? And then you, the kid is like, seems like he's not listening to you. Sometimes parents are just like, oh, he's just ignoring me, you know? And sometimes they may be because teens do that. But other times it's that, no, like your brain is actually attending to something else. And it's like, it's not listening to you. Like the sound is coming to their ears, but the brain is not registering it. I think the most frustrating part, um, I have a teenager that has ADHD and I get onto him regularly for what I call the instant okay, where I give him a direction and I'm like, hey, I need you to do this thing. And he'll look at me and say, okay. And then I come back later and it's clear that he has like heard me talking to him. I've given a directive, but then nothing happens. There's no follow through with that. So that not seeming to listen, I think this criterion really is saying doesn't seem to process and then act upon consistently what they clearly are able to follow um, kind of your your stream of thought Mm -hmm. down to a set of actions they're supposed to be engaging in. That you're just not, there's something missing that makes it so that that follow through is um, something that becomes problematic, which is part of some of the additional elements. These all overlap a lot at times, I think. Heather, talk to me about sustained attention. Like, that seems like a real clinical term. What does sustained attention mean? Um, It's the ability to stay engaged, stay focused on a task for a a given length of time. And 
the expectations for that change over the course of development. So you expect, you know, a shorter period of attention for a young child than you would for a teenager. So this is something that becomes really problematic at school because there are expectations that kids work for a certain amount of time, their independent work time at their desk. Um, and so you find kids with ADHD really struggling to get their tasks done because their brain is just fatigued at that So, Katie, when we think about sustained attention, I think a lot of times people think about school and what that looks like, because those are the most classic examples of needing to remain attentive, vigilant, focused, and to have concentrated, engaged for longer periods of time. So when we're asking parents about sustained attention, what might this look like in a household setting? So one thing before you get into talking about that, that I also feel like is kind of contradictory about the sustained attention that's worth mentioning is that with ADHD, while sustained attention is definitely an area uh, that pops up, it doesn't mean that the child can't sustain their attention at certain times. And the, the key thing is when they are engaged and interested or it's a task that they find motivating or interesting on some level, they're e- more easily able to sustain their attention. Well, I think that's true for attention in, in general, right? For sure. As humans. I think that's also something that is confusing for parents because they can see that the kid is playing video games for a long time, you know, or playing with their Legos or reading or doing their preferred activity. I think it's helpful to learn that our brain has mainly two systems to regulate attention. And one is motivation driven, right? Like it's pleasure driven. If you like something, you know, your brain is releasing neurotransmitters to the attention center saying like, I like this, stay on it, do more of it, you know? But then there's another system of attention that is that top-down, goal-oriented, meaning whether you like it or not, you have to do it. Like there's something else that, you know, forces you to keep on doing it. And that's a system that develops later in kids with ADHD, right? So pleasure is, they can be motivated, but then the things that they must do without that motivation factor uh, takes a lot of effort. Yeah. So with with sustained attention in the home setting, what I typically ask parents is, well, how does the child do with activities that like daily tasks, say putting on their clothes or sitting down at the table to have a meal or something that maybe not necessarily is a, an interest or a hobby, but something more of a, just a task that you have to get done. So I think the analogy I gave parents a lot when we're having this conversation is, in my mind, I think of most ADHD kids as being these wonderful, little colorful, dynamic hummingbirds. And the way that that would look in like a real life situation at home, where it's not sit and stay and work quietly because that's what the classroom expectation is, might look a little something like a child who sips, and this is why I think hummingbird from task to task to task, especially if they're non-preferred activities. So if you've ever had a hummingbird feeder, you may find that a hummingbird comes in for a quick sip and then zips off. But at times, you'll have a hummingbird fly in, love the nectar that you put out for them, settle down, and actually sit there and feed for quite some time because they really love it or they need it more. ADHD brains are the same way. They seek out the perfect feed. It nourishes that attentional piece to be able to capture it and hold it. And when it's non-preferred activities or not meeting that expectation for the brain, then you get a little bit more distractibility and I'm moving from this to that. And homework time gets kind of 
chaotic because now we need to use the restroom. Now we need to get a snack. Now we have a question. Now we drop our pencil on the floor. Then we fell out of our chair or whatever other things get in the way of this being a consistently sustained effort over time when we know that they can do it with other tasks. So Catherine, talk with me a little bit about follow through. So that one of the criteria that um, is required in the DS3 for consideration, and not all kids are going to have difficulties with every single one of these. Mm -hmm. You have to meet um, a standard of difficulty in more than would be typical. Everyone's going to have struggles with some of these, some of the time, that's normal. Talk with me about what follow through. You talked about this at the beginning when we were discussing some of the early attentional stuff. What does that lack of follow through look like in the classroom and at home? Yeah, um, I think it can look very different in, in depending on the setting you're in. But um, a lot of times, you know, kids have plans. They've, they've got a plan for what they're going to do. And then somewhere along the way, attention gets diverted. Um, and, you know, despite their best intention, you know, tasks don't get completed, um, instructions get forgot, um, things get left unfinished. So at school, um, it's a little easier to kind of imagine what that looks like at school, right? So that looks like tasks don't get done, like especially long-term multi-step kind of projects that belong each other. Um, and kids really benefit from more chickens on that. Those are great points, Catherine. What about you, Madi? How would you maybe see this show up at home? So I think that uh, one of my favorite examples, so I'm very absent-minded, so it's really easy for me to give examples about this, <laughs> but I think everybody can relate to that experience where you're kind of walking through a room and you forgot what you were going to do, right? So ADHD is uh, having that experience a lot of the time where you pull your shower coat with your shoes on and they left the living room and went to the room and then shoes never got put on because of whatever the distractions came in, right? Um, or they got started on a task and then got distracted and then they didn't finish it, you know. Um, at school, too, is um, it, you can see a lot of independent work. You know, the teacher has given the instructions. Okay, get started on the work. And then they can make it started, but then it goes and finish on time. Or they give an assignment um, and then never turn them in, you know, things like that. Okay, so that classic, I put it in my folder, but I never gave it to the teacher, mm -hmm. would be a good example of follow through. Yeah, fully capable of doing this thing. I actually spent the effort to do it, and then it never got to the finish line. Yes. Catherine? That's one of my favorite ways to explain ADHD on just a macro level is just that gap between capability and execution. Mm -hmm. And I think that follow through is where you really see that, like the child is capable, but somewhere along the way, um, there's a derailment. Sure. So Katie, talk with me. One of the, the diagnostic criteria for ADHD that feels a little bit more easily identified in some ages versus others is the criteria that suggests that kids with ADHD frequently have difficulties with organization. What does that, that feel like in different age ranges? So, it is very different, I think, across development. And, and younger kids, you often see this pop up more at school. So even in kindergarten or first grade, maybe it's doing a couple of tasks in sequential order to get to a finished work product. Uh, whereas at home, maybe this is where I think conversations of following multi-step instructions come up. And like we've talked about, a lot of these, or a lot of these symptoms overlap 
but oftentimes with organization, organizing a task to completion, like, you know, step one, uh, for getting dressed in the morning, step one, I have to put my clothes on. Step two, come my shoes. Step three, getting my water bottle to meet my parent in the kitchen. At school, as kids get older, you start to see this difficulty pop up more and more. And a common place that I see it come up is with writing. So when you think about writing tasks, kids have lots of ideas. Being able to organize them and get them on paper is often very hard for various reasons, but one of them often relates to what you see in ADHD. Which is kind of an interesting take that sidebar piece about it being writing, not just that it happens in the classroom, but that you might actually be able to see in a child's work product, those ADHD symptoms show up, whether it's missing an a sign on a math problem or doing the front half of a worksheet but not the back because they didn't notice that it had a second page or writing a paragraph that is a wonderful descriptive piece of writing but has zero structure. So it's rambly. It says the same things four times. There's not a lot of planning that goes into that. I also think when I think about organization, I also Think about not just organizing your thoughts, but organizing your space. That kids with ADHD often have a hard time with a little bit more chaotic space around them. Like their room's a little bit of a mess. They don't always put things where our adult brain says, well, shoes go here or backpacks go there. Or to make life easier, I should have an object in its assigned location. And I think part of that is because of the attentional piece that comes from being able to maintain those sequences, like you said, the step-by-step for getting dressed or completing assignments. Mani, talk with me about, this one's always an interesting one to me because it, it's such a diverse set of behaviors. So the DSM says that often ADHD kids will avoid dislike or be reluctant to engage in tasks that require sustained mental effort. I'd like to hear your take on the difference between individual preferences for tasks and what the ADHD version of disliking these kinds of tasks might look like. Yeah. Because we're all going to dislike something, right? Yes. Yes. So um, the reason it refers to quote unquote cognitively effortful tasks is because those are the tasks that require a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of steps that you have to make yourself do. So is a difference between completing like a math worksheet, right, and doing a science experiment, right? So um, the amount of effort that it's going to take does depend on how interested you're in. So let's assume it's something that you're not that interested in because it takes more effort. Um, Then your brain has to recruit that system that we were talking about where it has to have a goal, right? It has to organize the steps to get to that goal, you know, and then you have to Pre, uh, you have to stay on task, prevent those distractions from derailing you, like you guys were saying before. You know, so that um, item is there because that sustaining effort requires all of those things put together. You know, so it's that combined difficulty of sustaining the attention, organizing, getting things to the finish line. So it takes a lot of effort, you know, and so one of the reasons that um, you know, kids with ADHD avoid those tasks is because, first of all, it's actually an adaptive response. Like, it's your brain saying, this is going to be too challenging for me. I don't want to do it. So what you're saying is it's not that they can't. It's that it requires so much energy Mm -hmm. at a higher level than the neurotypical brain to get that done that it physically feels more challenging. 
It does. And so just the same way that think of a physical activity, that's a good you know way to put it. Like think of a race, you know, and, or an exercise sport that you are like, oh, I can't do that. That's not my thing. Hockey's not my thing. Right. That's your brain telling you, this is going to take a lot of effort. You know, don't put me through that. So that's the same thing your child experiences. It's like, this is going to take a lot of effort. <laughs> you know, don't put me through that. Right. You know, so it's that difficulty of making yourself do it because of the amount of effort that it requires. And again, it's not that it just happened once or twice because we all have those things, you know, that, but it's like that constant struggle to do it. So Catherine, I want your take on what that actually looks like. Like we're talking about the neurocognitive piece that feels so challenging and stressful. It's a strenuous task and others, it's not a strenuous task that they have to register as being potentially challenging. When it says avoids dislikes or is reluctant, I want to know the behavioral part because often that feels a little like mind reading, right? Like I can't tell if their brain feels like it's working hard. Yeah. What might the behavioral output of that look like that a parent could be like, Oh, that looks like this. Um, a lot of task avoidance. So, um, you know, maybe getting up and walking across the classroom and talking to another kid uh, whenever there's something, you know, on their desk that is going to be more challenging for them work-wise. Um, I think also that inconsistency that we talked about, because some days they may have the energy to, to tackle a certain task. Some days they may not. So um, that kind of, you know, when parents observe that, like, I don't get it. Why is it that sometimes they can do this thing and sometimes they can't? Um, you know, how much energy do they have available that day? Um, I think also it can look like just frustration whenever something, they're trying something new that is not easily picked up. Um, there's a little bit of an emotional regulation piece too. They get frustrated and then they're like, okay, well, I'm not doing it. They, they give up quickly. Mm-hmm. So it can look like that too. So Katie, talk with me about, because in my mind, that last statement about frustration tolerance and trying to discontinue a task, that can look a couple of different ways. And if we're talking about a mood piece and not feeling capable or not feeling motivated, I think sometimes that task avoidance, like walking away or choosing something different is what we'll see. But oftentimes we'll get pushback instead. So how might that play in? So pushback and also negative self-talk. That's where you might start to hear the, I can't do this, or I'm not smart, or this is too hard for me. Behaviorally, you might hear the word opposition. So the, well, I'm just not going to do that. So not task avoidance, task refusal. Task refusal. And then often in teenagers, what I will hear you know, and, and the word procrastination is kind of controversial, but what all few teenagers say sometimes is, I can't start a project or a task until it gets closer to deadline. And I feel that push or that need to get it done sure. in a time crunch. What I think I hear more often from parents is that, that we have to talk about a lot is the difference between can't and doesn't. Like there are a lot of times that that uh, initial frustration moment, that flare up of, I'm not going to do that, is not an indication of, I am not. It is an indication of, I can't. I don't have the tools. Right. I don't have the resources. I think a lot of times we misconceptualize oppositional behavior as being one that's intentionally confrontational. 
But I think oftentimes it's really just a reflection of a child with a skill set deficit. If they had the, the ability to do that thing you were asking them to do effectively and to feel confident in that capability, and maybe I'm an optimist here, I think kids do. They are willing to do those things that they feel equipped for and have a comfort level with, a self-confidence for, if you will, and that that shows up in a number of different ways. It can look like running away. It can look like charging in and saying no. It can look like switching tasks or showing other you know, negative comments that come into play as well. It's always helpful to look at any child's behavior as a tip of the iceberg to what's really going on with them. And then get curious about it. Start asking those questions of why Why are they repeating this task? Do they have the tools that they need? Sure. Monty, talk with me about losing things. <laughs> Jennifer, I know you're asking me about this. <laughs> I might have asked strategically. I have three sets of keys to our office, you know, one in my purse, one in my work bag, and my husband has a third one. Um, so one of the things that happens is that when you are not paying, when it's hard for you to pay attention to details, or when your brain is paying attention to so many things at once, is that it doesn't register everything that you do, right? So when you are um, doing many things and you put, you know, I don't know, your book back here, or you put something in a different place, but you were thinking about what happened at school today, so then you bring it and register where the backpack is. So then later you need it, and you can't find the backpack, right? Or you can find that piece of homework that, you know, the teacher gave out. You know, it's like, it's constantly, oh, you know, losing the glove for practice. It's no time for practice, and you can't find your things, you know? Or, you know, leaving your phone at the coffee shop, you know, <laughs> in the bathroom. Or, you know, it's just your, your brain is connected to so many things and it doesn't register everything that you do. And then it's really easy to lose things. I agree completely. I find myself losing things at times. And I've always thought that this kind of runs in tandem with one of the other criterion, which is being forgetful. Mm-hmm. I feel like the losing things is maybe secondary to the forgetfulness. I agree. But being forgetful is not always about materials management either. It's not always that the headphones that you put down and couldn't remember where you put them or the shoes that, although they may be in the middle of the floor and I can see them in the first split second that I walk into my child's room that he's been searching for 10 minutes for and can't find. Catherine, talk with me about the difference between materials management kinds of losing things and what forgetfulness might look like because it's a little bit broader concept. Yeah. So I think probably um, something that a lot of people can relate to is uh, deadlines. So um, time management and deadlines would be a, a big concern for kids who have ADHD. And that's more of an abstract forgetfulness <laughs> because you're keeping track of a- actions you need to take um, and when those actions need to happen by. And so that, you know, when we work with teenagers who have ADHD, that's probably the, the biggest struggle I usually end up hearing about is just keeping track of um, all the things that need to be done and when they need to be done by. And that kind of awareness of time, um, kids get lost in time when they have ADHD and adults with ADHD as well. That's an excellent point. And we're going to have a segment later on that talks um, with Kathy Kersman, our executive function coach about that concept of time. 
and how it relates to task management, getting started, getting finished, because it really is an embedded piece that has tendrils throughout a lot of these things. All right, let's talk about the last attention component. And then I think we're going to shut this down as being an attention topic. And we're going to talk about hyperactive and impulsive behaviors in another episode. So if you really liked this portion and you want to know more about the second half of the ADHD piece, that hyperactive and impulsive component, join us for the next episode. But I want to finish this one out with a final diagnostic piece you haven't talked about, which is distractibility. Honestly, this is of all the criteria, this might be my favorite. And that sounds weird, but the reason for it is this is this is something in ADHD that I often find can be channeled into a strength. Because with distractibility, it's not necessarily a deficit, but it's just kind of a, a tweaking of the filter that needs to happen because oftentimes kids or adolescents or adults with ADHD have trouble filtering information. So it's almost like there's too many things coming in and it often makes them creative and excitable and many ideas. The tricky thing is at school, if they're supposed to be focusing on learning a new task or listening to the teacher, this can look like thinking about unrelated things or just completely being off subject or off task. Mm-hmm. I think that you get a lot of the, what, what? <laughs> when you're having a conversation and you give the instructions and the kids just, what? Because he was distracted, you know? Or the you're talking about something and it's, oh, well, would you look at that? Or did you know what happened today? And it's, it's completely off topic, but to them, it's exciting and it's important. That classic squirrel moment, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, look at that thing I see. I think of them as shiny things that, draw your attention and focus. And the interesting part about this is that your brain is wired for this. It's supposed to notice novel things. It's supposed to seek out things that are unexpected because back in the days when we were human being chased by things, we needed to be vigilant about changes in our environment that would allow us to stay safe and to survive. This is, like Katie said, I think a real adaptive characteristic if we can streamline this process into something productive. At the same time, though, that distractibility can sometimes be problematic. And the way that I see this show up the most is in productivity, where the timelines for things getting done, even when a child is working steadily, sometimes get a little bit longer because there are uh, moments when they are engaged in working and then interspersed moments where they are mentally off task, they zoned out or thought about something else, and then it takes a little bit of time to come back. Sometimes getting back is something their brain can do. Oftentimes it's not. And this is where you get kids that are dependent on the environment, a teacher, a parent, a reminder, somebody coming in close proximity and being like, hey, buddy, you're supposed to be doing this thing that shuts down that distractible moment and brings you back to task. You often hear teachers saying, this child needs a lot of redirection. Redirection is is used a lot as a term that relates directly to distractibility. So I think the final piece that, I want to bring full circle is the part where all of our kids, brain kids that have a diagnosis of ADHD or struggling with attention are fully capable of paying attention. They're just, they don't have the sophisticated skills needed to prioritize attention all the time, at least to not prioritize the things that are interesting um, to them versus interesting and important to you, which to be fair, brains are naturally going to seek out the things you find naturally interesting. 
So when you have a teacher who's given directions or a parent who's given directions and your brain's intentional choices between something shiny and fun and novel and something boring and slow and monotonous, I think there's a real natural reason why it's easier for brains to, to shift to the fun, shiny things. ADHD brains have a harder time shifting and staying focused on what your priority is for their brain. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So we're going to drop this one down for now and switch gears to hyperactive and impulsive behaviors in our next episode. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Quick and Easy Behavior Tips with Dr. Morrison. This week's strategy is called Yes, But. Kids often struggle with hearing no as an answer. And if we think about our role as adults, it is to set limits on kids, which often means that there is a no involved. People in general dislike no when they were hoping for a yes. They have their mind set on something and now they're disappointed. And that is a very normal human emotion, adult and kid alike. The tip this time is to give a slightly different response that is less likely to result in your child pushing back or being disappointed. I call this the yes, but response. It's not a no, but it is a not right now response, okay, without saying not right now. So let's use an example. Let's say your four-year-old asks for a second book at bedtime and you would need or want to somehow decline this request. Like you've already read two and it's late, it's time for bed, you've got other things that you need to do. This may lead to some dreaded bedtime meltdown if it doesn't go well. So I want you to consider something like this. Yes, you can read another book tomorrow. Let's put out your extra book for bedtime tomorrow so we won't forget. So essentially what you're saying is not right now, but in a way that says yes. When you say no, kids are much more reactive. But when you set a limit and say, yes, we can do this thing, it just can't be right now, it is much easier for kids to tolerate because you've said yes. And they've been given what they've asked for, but they're needing to wait on that, which is a really important life skill too. We want our kids to be able to defer, like wait for something to happen. So take an expectation and hold on to it or pause for it. And that's something that you've taught as a part of this process. You've told them that you're going to do exactly what they have asked, but they're going to have to wait for it, which is what life requires all of us. Let's use a teenager example. If your teenager asks if they can go over to a friend's house, but it isn't possible today, try using something like this. You can definitely go over to Sam's house later this week when we have more free time. Let's figure out a time on the schedule that makes sense and sit down with your child and find a time where a visit over at Sam's house is definitely possible. And it may be tomorrow. It may be later in the week. What you're saying is, I absolutely want to make space for that. I know it's important for you and I want to make sure that happens, but it can't happen right this second. It's a much more collaborative way of making decisions. So it doesn't feel so unilateral, like parents only making decisions and kids being at the whim of whatever their parents have said. And I think you'll find that using the yes, but strategy reduces the struggles between you and your child at home. 